0: please visit redemptionokc.com. Do all things without grumbling or disputing that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life so that in the day of Christ... I may be proud that I did not run in in vain or labor in vain. Even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. Likewise, you should all rejoice and be glad with me. It's the word of the Lord.
1: Let's be seated. Thank you, Chris. Uh, Chris said Ephesians, but we are still in Philippians. Don't worry. That's true. Sorry. My bad. Dude. It's all good. Uh, and in Philippians, we've got our work cut out for ourselves this morning. Uh, if you missed it, as Chris was reading, the first seven words of our passage are do all things without grumbling or disputing. Uh, I don't know about you, but I fail to do all things without grumbling or disputing every single day. Uh, Usually I fail at it as soon as I start my day because my alarm goes off and the first thing I do is internally grumble and think, do I really have to get up already? And then it doesn't end there it just gets worse after you get out of bed it's one thing after another and sometimes it it seems like our days are just one thing to grumble about after another thing to grumble about there was an article in the new yorker from 2015 written by joshua rothman titled a few notes on grumbling and he starts out this article by telling his readers that he decided to take an entire week and after each interaction he had with someone he made a note of whether or not that interaction included any grumbling. And here was uh, Rotham's answer about how many of his interactions in this week included grumbling. He said, the answer was nearly 100%. I had grumbled, my friends had grumbled. If I'd overheard someone having a phone conversation on the street, it had involved grumbling. It's the kind of thing that makes you think maybe if we had a keen vision and feeling for all of that grumbling it would be like hearing grass grow and we die from the roar of grumbling which is opposite of positivity and contentment I don't think that uh, anything's changed since 2015 if anything our world is probably filled with even more grumbling Uh, we grumble our friends grumble People grumble in person, people grumble online, people grumble on TV, they grumble at work and at school. We live in a culture of grumbling. And we all like positivity, we all like joy, yet we live in this world where grumbling and negativity is the norm. But Paul, in these verses from Philippians, calls us as Christians to be different. He calls us out of this world of grumbling and disputing and calls us to something different. He calls us to be a life-giving presence in all of our relationships instead of a life-killing presence. Uh, The default disposition of our world is certainly to grumble, and so if we're going to break that mold, if we're going to be different, if we're going to live according to the standard that Paul tells us to, then we're going to have to have some good reasons why we should live that way, some good motivators to get us beyond this world of grumbling. It's really clear from this text Paul wants us to be different he wants us not to grumble and so this is an important text for us to help uh, persuade us how we can live a life that's different from the world and that doesn't include grumbling another reason that this is a really important text in the letter is because this is the end of this middle section in the book of Philippians where Paul is calling the Philippian Christians to live a certain way It started back in chapter 1 when Paul said, live your lives in a manner worthy of the gospel. And now, for the past several weeks, if you've been with us, we've kind of fleshed out how we go about living our lives worthy of the gospel. As we got into chapter 2, we saw that it meant serving and sacrificing for others, remembering that Jesus served and sacrificed for us. And then last week, we saw Paul call Christians to work out their own salvation, He was calling us to to grow more like Christ, to take responsibility for our progress and our joy and our faith. And now here at verses 14 through 18, Paul is going to give us two ways that we can do that, two ways that we can work out our salvation, two ways we can grow in our faith. So let's go ahead and and jump in and see what we can learn from this text this morning. Philippians 2, uh, starting in verse 14, again, Paul says, do all things without grumbling or disputing that you may be blameless and innocent children of god without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights in the world now the thing that stands out to me from verse 14 is the thing i've already mentioned it's that paul says do all things without grumbling And without disputing but I think if we look a little closer at the text it it seems like Paul more so than calling us away from grumbling and disputing he's calling us to something and there's a couple of reasons why I say that the first is because Paul's command in verse 14 is a positive command it's not a negative command and it's a little bit of weird language because Paul says do all things and that's not a complete thought obviously paul's not telling us to do every literal thing that we can in the world so we're waiting paul how how do we do all things and he says do all things without grumbling or disputing so in other words paul could it would have been simpler for paul to just write don't grumble don't dispute but he writes it in this odd way to say do all things without grumbling or disputing. I think that's intentional. I think he's calling us to something more than he's calling us away from something. Um, And and what he's calling us to is to be a life-giving presence in everything we do. Another reason why I think that Paul's emphasis is on being a life-giving presence is because of how he ends verse 15 saying that Christians ought to shine as lights in the world. Again, the emphasis here is on something positive. It's on something that Christians are, they're lights, and something Christians do, they shine. And so why I think that's important is because I don't think we should leave here this morning with the simple conclusion of, I need to stop grumbling and stop disputing. Uh, That's probably true, but I think a better takeaway from this text would be that we as Christians ought to bring a life-giving presence everywhere we go, in everything we do, and in every relationship we have. This is the first thing that Paul says. Last week he said, work out your own salvation. And now this week, the first thing he says about doing that is be a life-giving presence. And how do we do that? Well, Paul says, if you want to be a life-giving presence in the world, then you should go about your life without doing these two things, without grumbling and without disputing. And we're going to focus mostly on grumbling today. We've already kind of looked at unity um, a, a couple weeks ago. So we'll, we'll focus here on this don't grumble. Paul is calling us to something higher than simply the absence of grumbling. He's calling us to be a life giving presence that gives life in all of our relationships. Paul, and, and what did Paul say about this? He said, Do all things this way get out of bed in the morning without grumbling. Go to work without grumbling. Interact with your classmates or your co-workers without grumbling. Don't grumble when someone calls you and needs a favor. Don't grumble when the car breaks down. Don't grumble when your kids disobey. Don't grumble when someone disagrees with you or cuts you off in traffic. Uh, don't grumble in person. Don't grumble online. Paul says, do all things, and that means all things, without grumbling. Uh I'm sure I'm not alone in that this is a really challenging text. Uh, as you're preparing a sermon, um, it, it's the, the person preaching's responsibility to apply the text and the sermon to themselves before we get up here and ask you guys to do it as well. And this has been a tough one for me because for two weeks now, every time I get frustrated or complain about something, I immediately hear Paul's voice in my ear saying, Do all things without grumbling. Or disputing. Uh, the best example of this came yesterday. Uh, tomorrow is, is Maddie's birthday, my wife, and last week uh, she got a, a new rug for her birthday um, for our living room. And yesterday we went to breakfast and we ran some errands, and then we got home, we walked in the door, and our dog had chewed up this new rug. And I wish I could tell you that I handled that situation without grumbling. But I didn't. I yelled at the dog. I threw her out of the house. I stormed around the house in anger. Uh, It's really hard to live a life without grumbling or without disputing. It's just as hard for me after studying this passage for two weeks than it was two weeks ago. And so if we're going to live this way, we, we have to have a good reason why. Because it is really hard to live this way. It's not the normal way that people live in the world. I think this passage gives us two reasons for why Christians should live without grumbling. The first reason is because of our identity in Christ. We see that in verse 15, as Paul says, uh, Live this way that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God, without blemish, in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation. So Paul sets up this contrast. He says, the world around you, the culture, is crooked and twisted, But you, Christian, are not part of that group. Your identity is child of God, and therefore you ought to be blameless and innocent. He's saying Christians uh, don't live like the rest of the world because they aren't like the rest of the world. They're children of God. And so even if the natural disposition of our world is grumbling, our disposition ought to be different. Uh, With this language here uh, of crooked and twisted and grumbling, Paul's actually drawing on um, a couple of stories from the Old Testament. So keep your place in uh, Philippians, but if you want to, you can turn over to Exodus um, Exodus 16 to give us some context here. The Israelites um, have just left Egypt so God has called Israel to be his people, he's led them out of Egypt, and the Red Sea event has just happened a couple of chapters earlier, where Israel's being pursued by the Egyptians, they come up to the Red Sea, God parts the Red Sea, Israel goes through, and then God crashes the water back down and destroys the Egyptians, and Israel is finally free at last, and you have about one chapter of celebrating and being grateful and joy And then we get to uh, Exodus 16. In Exodus 16, it says, They set out from Elam, and all the congregation of the people came to the wilderness of Sin, which is between Elam and Sinai, on the fifteenth day of the second month after they had departed from the land of Egypt. And the whole congregation of the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. And the people of Israel said to them, Would that we had died by the hand of the Lord in Egypt. When we sat by the meat pots and ate bread to the full, for you have brought us out into this wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger. So God's taken the Israelites. He's called them to be his people. He's rescued them from slavery in Egypt. He's leading them to the promised land. And now they get out in the wilderness and they quickly lose their excitement and they begin to grumble and wish that they could just go back to Egypt and be in slavery again. Then flip over to Deuteronomy 32. Uh, Deuteronomy 32 now the people have been wandering in the wilderness for 40 years because they grumbled against God they turned to other other gods and so God's let them wander in the wilderness for 40 years and now Moses is speaking this song over Israel and here's what he says in Deuteronomy 32 verses 4 and 5. Moses says the rock his work is perfect for all his ways are justice a God of faithfulness and without iniquity, just and upright is he. But they, and he's talking about Israel, they have dealt corruptly with him. They are no longer his children because they are blemished. They are a crooked and twisted generation. And so Paul is clearly borrowing language in Philippians 2 from Exodus 16 and Deuteronomy 32 in order to help make his point. It's the no longer children, blemished, crooked, and twisted, that language he's borrowing. And uh, what's so interesting is that in Deuteronomy 32, it's the Israelites, it's God's people who are called this crooked and twisted generation. Uh, But Paul in Philippians says, no, it's the people out there, it's the non-Christians, it's those who aren't God's children who are crooked and twisted. You, Christian, ought to be different. And I think what Paul's doing here is he's, he's alluding to these Old Testament stories and holding up Israel as this example of what not to do. He's saying, do you remember what Israel did? Israel was called out by God. God rescued them from slavery. God was leading them to the best land in the region. God wanted to bless them in innumerable ways, and yet they grumbled. And because they grumbled, they lost their standing as God's children, and they're called a crooked and twisted generation. And Paul, in effect, is saying that you, Christian, have a choice to make. You, too, have been called out by God. You've been rescued not from slavery but from sin. God wants to bless you as well, so don't be like Israel. Don't grumble. Don't be like the Israelites. Don't be like the non-Christians in your city who constantly complain and argue. Remember who you are. You're a child of God, and part of your identity as a child of God means you don't have any reason to grumble or dispute. And why is that the case? It's because God loves you, and God cares for you, and God is sovereign over all things, which means if we believe that that's true, we know that that's true— What grounds do we have to crumble? If God is in control of all things and God wants what's best for us, then we have no reason to complain about our circumstances. The problem is, instead of being content with the incredible things God has done for us in Christ, we we chase after comfort and joy in other places and we often don't get those things and so we crumble. Uh, If our greatest desires. if the place that we look to for hope and joy in the world is anything other than God, this world is going to give us a lot of reasons to grumble. But if our greatest desire is to know and be loved by the God who created us, to live in peace and joy in response to his love and care for us, then we don't have any good reason to grumble because God has given us all that we need. I love this quote uh, from the Puritan, Jeremiah Burroughs. Uh, He says, you are the spouse of Christ. What? One married to Jesus Christ and yet troubled and discontented? Have you not enough in him? Does not Christ your husband say to you, am not I better to you than thousands of riches and comforts? Such comforts as you murmur or grumble for lack of? Has not God given you his son, and will he not with him give you all things? Has the love of God to you been such as to give you his son in marriage? Then why are you discontented and murmuring? This is a really piercing rebuke from Burroughs in true Puritan fashion. But it is true. Because if we've trusted in Jesus for the forgiveness of our sins, he's reconciled us to the sovereign God of the universe. He's secured our eternal future in heaven. He promises that he's with us in all things here on earth, that he wants what's best for us, that he offers us a a life of peace and hope and joy and love because he's set us free from the bondage of sin and shame. And yet we grumble when the alarm goes off in the morning or when the lines too long at the grocery store, or when our dog chews up the rug. And when we grumble about those things, it reveals our true heart and where we're looking to for joy in life. So that's the first reason that we as Christians should live a life devoid of grumbling or disputing. It's because our identity is as a child of God, and as children of God, we know that we're taken care of, and we have no reason to grumble. The second reason why we as Christians ought not to grumble is because of our mission. Paul says, do all things without grumbling or disputing, so that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world. There's a clear echo here of Jesus on the sermon, uh, in the Sermon on the Mount, a verse that we've repeated over and over again at Redemption the past year, when Jesus says, You are the light of the world, so let your light shine before others that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father in heaven. For both Jesus and Paul, the way that Christians live has a specific purpose. There's a result of living different than the rest of the world. When we live according to God's will and God's way, we look different than the rest of the world, and this difference will serve to advance the gospel in our city. When we bring a life-giving presence to our jobs or our schools or the grocery store, it will stand out because most people in those places are grumbling and life-sucking instead of life-giving. And so as we go into our city with this presence, with this attitude and demeanor, it'll cheer people up and show people that we love them. It'll open up doors for relationships, it will build bridges of trust, it's contagious and other people will want it, and hopefully that will give us an opportunity to tell people why it is that we can live this way. The truth is, as I said a moment ago, our world actually gives people a lot of good reasons to grumble if you don't have a christian perspective that sees god in control of all things then grumbling is a natural response to our world because we're all anxious we're all tired we all need more time and more money and so if this world is all there is then uh, there's it's no wonder we're all so grumpy all the time what people in our city need isn't to be told look on the bright side and find the silver lining. See your cup as half full instead of half empty. What people need is to know that there's a God who loves them and who cares for them and who wants what's best for them and that they can know this God through his son, Jesus Christ. Uh, living with a life-giving presence is attractive, but the flip side of that is also true as well. A Christian who complains all of the time is a terrible witness if we go around telling people that god is real and god loves us but then all we do is complain why would anyone actually believe that god is real and that god loves us so let's go into our city without grumbling let's let's bring a life-giving presence to all that we do let's seek to pass that along let's tell people why it is we can even live this way and invite them to trust and to know this god that's the first thing we learn from this passage. It's that Paul calls us as Christians to work out our salvation by being a life-giving presence everywhere we go, in everything we do, and in every relationship that we have. Now let's look at Paul, how Paul transitions this passage and then finishes up this section in Philippians. Uh, picking it up back in verse 16, Paul says, You shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life. So that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. Even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. Likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. So, what's Paul saying here? He seems to move quickly from uh, saying, be be a life-giving presence, don't grumble, don't dispute, and now he's talking about remaining faithful to Christ until the end. Uh, He tells them to live this way so that he can know that his work among them Will not be wasted, so that when Jesus comes back, these Philippians will still be trusting him, um, and, and Paul's work among them won't be wasted. And then he uses this language that's a little bit confusing to us, but he's talking about offerings. He says he's willing to be poured out like a drink offering. And what's really interesting is what he says he's willing to be poured out for. He says, I'm willing to be poured out for the sacrificial offering of their faith. So, what does that mean? Well, it means that Paul sees their faith, and and our faith by extension, as an offering to God, something that we offer back to God. Uh, Paul's borrowing these Old Testament concepts of offerings, and he's applying them to the Christian life. He's saying, just like the Israelites offered sacrifices to God in response to what he had done for them, and rescuing them from slavery in Egypt, so you, Christian, ought to offer your faith in response to what God has done for you. And Paul says that he's willing to be poured out. He's willing to be completely drained and used up for that, for the Philippians' faith. And I think that reveals just how important Paul sees Christian faith. We're only willing to pour ourselves out for things that we really, really care about. And Paul says, even if I'm poured out and totally emptied for the sake of your faith, I'm glad and I rejoice. It was worth it to Paul to spend himself for others. And then he calls the Philippians in that last verse to join him. He says, likewise, you should be glad about this as well and rejoice with me. Here's what I want us to take away from these verses, is that one of the ways we work out our salvation is by living a life that matters. This one isn't a command. There's not a clear command here, like, do all things without grumbling or disputing from verse 14, but what we see here is Paul giving us an example to follow. We can look at Paul here, the things he cares about, the things he does, the things he says, and know what a life well-lived looks like. And then we can imitate Paul by working out our salvation and living the same way. So when we look at Paul, we see that he doesn't pour himself out for worldly success or riches. He doesn't do the opposite and just hold himself back and not pour himself out for anything. Instead, what he does is he pours himself out for the thing that matters more to him than anything in the world, which is the gospel and the gospel's work in his life, And in the life of other Christians and others that he's telling about Jesus this is our calling as well we all only have so much energy so much time so many resources and we all have to ask ourselves what are we going to pour ourselves out for so what can we learn from Paul about how to do this how to pour ourselves out for a life that matters first thing is that we need to hold fast to Christ. The bridge in the middle of this section that transitions Paul into this new thought is this little phrase, holding fast to the word of life. And the word of life Paul's referring to is Jesus. So Paul's saying, be a life-giving presence. Don't grumble, don't dispute, and do all of this holding fast to Jesus so that your precious faith will endure until the end. Paul doesn't merely want them to be a life-giving presence. Paul doesn't merely want to build this great church in Philippi. What he wants more than anything is to see people holding fast to Christ. We've already seen in this letter that uh, for Paul, everything is about Jesus. He famously said, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. Because he gets to be with Jesus. So whether he lives, it's about Jesus. Whether he dies, it's about Jesus. For Paul, everything is about Jesus. And what we can learn is that living a life that matters means holding fast to Jesus. It means everything ought to be about Jesus. Continuing to believe in Jesus, or maybe believing and trusting in him for the first time. um, Serving him, loving him, this one who died for us. Second, living a life that matters means taking our own faith seriously and working hard for the faith of others as well. Remember what Paul called our faith in Christ. He said it's a sacrificial offering to God. And that's a really serious way to talk about our faith. In the book of Leviticus in the Old Testament, God uh, lays out the sacrificial system to the Israelites, and it's very, very detailed about how and when to perform these sacrifices. And one of the reasons why God goes into so much detail in the system is because he wants the Israelites to be constantly reminded that he is holy, that they are not, but that God has called them into relationship with him, but that this relationship shouldn't be taken for granted, So they had to be very careful how they performed the sacrifices, to do it the right way with the right animal. And the point wasn't just to make it hard on them. The point was to teach them that there's a, a cost and a weightiness to being in the presence of God. And somehow, Paul is connecting that sacrificial system to how we live out our faith today. Uh, now, here's what Paul's not saying. We know that Paul isn't saying that you are earn your forgiveness by the way you live. He's not saying you offer your faith to God and hope that God accepts you based on what you've done. We know that God has accepted us in Christ because of what Christ has done and not because of what we have done. But that wasn't really how the sacrifices worked either. They were offering sacrifices in response to what God had already done for them and so that God could teach them how to relate to him. And so as the Israelites performed these sacrifices, it was a daily reminder of that God is their provider, God is their savior, God is holy and perfect, and they are not, but God wants to be in relationship with them anyway. And I think what Paul is getting out at getting at here is that our faith is a serious thing. He's reminding the Philippians of how serious those sacrifices are and saying, you don't have to do these sacrifices anymore. Be happy about that. But remember that your faith is just as serious. It's not a light thing. It's not a cheap thing. It's something to be taken very seriously. So I think the primary thing we should take away from this weird language of, of sacrifices and connection with our faith is that our faith in Christ should be the most important thing in the world to us. Paul is teaching us here that our faith is a serious, serious thing. If you've ever tried to read the book of Leviticus, it is a very hard book to read, but you can't read the book of Leviticus and not be struck by how important those offerings are, both to God and to the people. And unfortunately, I don't think we usually see our faith in that same kind of light, because uh, most of us, myself included, grew up in a Christian family, in a country that's favorable to Christianity, and so our faith, our relationship with God, is often something that we just assume. We take it for granted. But you couldn't do that with the sacrifices. You had to always know that you had what you needed for the sacrifice, you had to get to where you needed to go, and when you did it, you got dirty and disgusting. It wasn't something that you could just go through life kind of forgetting about, oh yeah, there's that sacrifice thing that we need to do. They constantly reminded the people of who God was and who they were and of their relationship with him. And so I think we can certainly learn something here from how seriously Paul describes our faith. That our faith isn't meant to be something assumed or unimportant. It ought to be the most important thing in the world. And then taking that a step further and following Paul's example, we ought to care deeply about the faith of others as well. Paul says in this passage that it brings him joy, that he's glad to be poured out for the faith of other people. Listen to how... Through many a sleepless night, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure, and apart from other things, there is the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches. And all of this happened to Paul in his life because he was constantly working for the faith of others. And yet, Paul's endured all of this and he says, I am glad and I rejoice." There's no way Paul would be able to say he's glad that he rejoices. There's no way he would continue to go through life having all of these things happen to him because of his work for the gospel if his faith and the faith of others wasn't the most important thing in the world to him. So even, those, even though Paul's life includes terrible, terrible circumstances, he can say, I'm glad and I have joy because he knows that his life matters. He was beaten and imprisoned. He didn't have a home. He was hated by his own people. He had this incredible weight on his shoulders, and yet he rejoices because he knows that he's serving to advance the gospel in other people's lives and around the world. This is someone who has grown in his faith. He's worked out his salvation to a point where nothing matters more to him than his faith, the faith of his friends, and the faith of those who haven't yet trusted in Jesus. So let's follow Paul's example here. Uh, it's It's a high bar, but it's a worthy bar to take our faith seriously, but not only that, to take the faith of others, the faith of those in this room seriously as well. It's a call to be in community with other Christians, to love and to serve other Christians, to encourage other Christians, to pray for other Christians, to warn other Christians when they stray from the path to do ministry in our city and around the world alongside other Christians. This is the picture that Paul paints of what it means to live a life that matters. And here's why. Uh, Just like with living a life of without grumbling, we need a good reason to do that, we also need a good reason to care deeply about the faith of others as well. And it's that little phrase in verse 16, The day of Christ. This is Paul's way of referring to eternity. The day when Jesus comes back, judges the earth, and makes all things new. And this thing right here, the day of Christ, is the primary driving factor in Paul's life. Because if Christ isn't coming back, if there isn't an eternal future for all human beings, then there's no good reason whatsoever to suffer all the things Paul suffered for the sake of other people and others' faith. Paul's life would have been a life totally, totally wasted, but... If Jesus is coming back, and if every human being was created in God's image and created to live with God forever, then nothing could possibly matter more in the world than wanting people to have faith in Jesus. This is the thing that drives Paul. Without Jesus' return, without eternity, without the day of Christ, Paul has lived a meaningless life, but with that day... Paul has lived a life that has mattered more than anyone else who's ever lived apart from Jesus himself. And eternity, that day of Christ, Jesus' return, ought to be our primary motivator as well. It's really hard for us to think about eternity when we're in the day to day grind of life here on earth, isn't it? But this is what we believe. We believe that we have an eternal future with God in heaven, that everyone has an eternal future with or without God, and so that ought to be this primary driving factor in all that we do. Uh, Martin Luther famously said that he had two days on his calendar, this day and that day, which was the day when Christ returned, and it was Luther's goal to live every day, every this day, in light of that day when Jesus would return, and that's what Paul did And that's what it looks like to live a life that matters. It's a life that pours itself out for things that are eternal, things that last forever, not things that will be gone in an instant. To bring this full circle as we close and come back to um, being a life-giving presence, this is also a primary reason why we as Christians ought to live in the world as a life-giving presence we ought to bring life to every relationship instead of grumbling because our relationships are more are about more than just our present circumstances that are making us want to grumble Uh, think about what it would look like to see every single relationship every conversation every situation in your day in light of eternity I would radically change how we see people it would radically change how we respond to the things that make us want to grumble and the things that seem like they're a big deal even though in light of eternity they really aren't c.s lewis wrote this about the importance of our day-to-day interactions with people he said all day long we are in some degree helping each other to one or the other of these destinations heaven or hell It is in light of these overwhelming possibilities, it is with the awe and the circumspection proper to them, that we should conduct all our dealings with one another. All friendships, all loves, all play, all politics, there are no ordinary people. You have never talked to a mere mortal. It is immortals whom we joke with, work with, marry, snub, and exploit. Immortal horrors or everlasting splendors. Lewis very vividly describes how he thinks we should view people in light of eternity and shows us what's at stake in every relationship that we have all day long we are pointing people in one of two directions whether we acknowledge it or not we're either bringing life to relationships and pointing people to joy and love and contentment in christ or we're sucking life from relationships and pointing people to complaining and sin and away from christ and the call for us as Christians is to trust God with our circumstances, those that want to the circumstances that give us reason to complain. We trust God with those circumstances, and then we go out into the world and bring life in all of our relationships in order to point people to Christ. We go to our families and our schools, our workplaces, where we shop, where we eat, where we play, and we bring a life-giving presence that points people in the direction of Jesus and eternity with him. That's what's at stake in every relationship and every conversation. It's part of how we live a life that matters, because our faith and the faith of others is more important than anything else in this world. So let's love God, let's love others by bringing a life-giving presence everywhere we go in response to who God is and what he's done for us in Christ. Let me pray for us. Father, we thank you for your grace, because we know that we fail to live this way every single day. God, we just ask by your spirit that you would help us bring life to this world that so desperately needs it. We pray that you, as we live this way, that, that people would see you, that more people in our city would trust you, and that your gospel would go forth, and that your mission would be successful. Father, we pray... In Jesus' name, that you would do this in our lives and in our city. Amen.
0: Amen.